Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Well, good morning. It, uh, it's already been good, hasn't it, to be in, in the Lord's house today? Yeah, I've been, uh, been very grateful to see smiling faces and, um, and lots of faces. You all represent to me people who have triumphed over winter, right? Listen... Listen, I'm telling you that um, I'm flirting with this idea, look for an email next week, but I think we may just need to come in, in flip-flops and tropical something next week just to you know, let it be known where we stand on this whole... Uh, Jeremy says no, he wants more snow. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Carr, all of your aggressions. Just... Hmm... See, I grew up on a farm, and uh, a lot of farmers have this relationship with God where the, the one thing they say the most is, more moisture, please, more moisture, please. So for all of the farmers in the congregation who are grateful for this uh, nice, gentle snow, we'll give thanks and dream summer dreams on our own, right? So there's these three terms, the Christian faith and the Christian religion and the Christian church. You may have a favorite among those, the the one that you feel fits you the best, and there may be one in there that makes you squirm a little bit. It seems like these days, more and more all the time, folks are, are becoming uncomfortable with the word religion. But among those three things, the Christian faith and the Christian religion and the Christian church, they all have one word in common, and it's Christian it's, it's the most important word among the three. It's, it's the, the one that gives meaning to, to each of those three. And in its origin, it was an insult. Initially, the followers of Jesus were just called the followers of Jesus or were called all kinds of names that amounted to scoundrel. Um, initially, they, they all started to, to live the same way, and people looked at them and just referred to the, the way or the, or the people who are part of the way. But it was uh, not too long after Jesus had left this earth and, and, and the church had begun to function in his name that some people up the coast from Israel a little ways took a look at, at the, the followers of Jesus in their town. Their town had become a real center, an early center of Christianity. Lots and lots and lots of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And because of the distinctive ways that they lived, the other people in the town looked at them and said, these people must think they are little Christs or Christians, Christians. And it started off as an insult to call somebody a Christian. They're, they're so into this religion, they, they must think they're a little version of Christ himself. And to the people who were following Jesus, that seemed like the greatest honor that they had uh, ever received. And so we, the followers of Jesus Christ, have, have taken that name. And, and I hope that the way that we take it today is uh, not in pride, but humbly counting ourselves blessed to have been numbered among the followers of Jesus down through time. 
the Christians, then, are, are people who live a certain way. There are people whose lives seem to be centered on three activities. The, uh, the Christians' lives seem to be centered, first and foremost, on the building of relationship. First, uh, primarily with God, but then with other people. We build relationships with, with other people who know and love and serve our God. And, and because of the benefits that, that we receive in relationship with him and relationship with other believers, we then reach outside our, our own number and, and we do our very best to introduce other people to our God and to our friends who love and follow him. Christians center their lives on building those kinds of relationships. They also, we also center our lives on, on a number of activities that we believe will cause our faith to grow and mature and become more solid and durable. As well as those two things, the followers of Jesus always seem to be pouring out their lives in service. Wasn't it, wasn't it just awesome to listen as Gina talked with us today about the way people in this congregation are just pouring out their lives? Listen, you guys are the real followers of Jesus. You keep acting like this, people are going to call you Christians. They're going to confuse you with Jesus and think that, that you think you're just a smaller version of a great big God. Keep at it, okay? Know that your pastor is very, very proud of you. Be humble for sure, and um, your pastor will, if there's a sanctified kind of pride, I'll grab that, okay? Among the followers of Jesus, uh, we have found, uh, because we have read the scriptures and have been taught by them, that human beings are forgetful. And because we are forgetful and because there are some very important things for us to remember, we have been taught by the scriptures themselves to repeat some things, to say them to ourselves often, a handful of actions that we should do again and again and again as a way of reminding ourselves of the truths that are supposed to guide and guard our lives. We talked about that a little bit last week. It was the principle of Sabbath. Right? It wasn't primarily, oh, God was tired after he made the whole world, so he took a nap, and you should follow suit. It was, it was this idea that God said, I'm going to give you a gift, and if you keep the gift, the gift will always remind you of my goodness. If you throw away the gift, you might forget that. Uh, the hands of all the forgetful people, please. Okay, yeah. And so uh, the, the scriptures tell us there are a handful of things that we should repeat often. You'll find Christian music, old and new alike, repeats things. You get to the end of a, of a verse of a good old hymn, what do you do? Sing the chorus. And what do you do after you sing four or five verses? Sing two or three more choruses to make sure that we get the point, right? Bridges in new Christian songs repeat phrases and ideas. Why? Because it's the most important part of the most important thought in the song. And we want to make sure that those things are, are driven deep into our hearts and minds. God gave a number of, of repeated practices to his first followers, the, the people of Israel, and then some were taught to his new followers, the, the, the Jesus people. And uh, listen, we don't have to apologize to ourselves, to the world, for being repetitious and talking about the same things all the time. We do it on purpose so that we never forget the love and the goodness of God. And the things that we repeat as Christians, the, the actions and the words that we repeat, those things make up religion. 
the Christian religion is the, the repetition of some very important ceremonies and some very important ideas. And we think that the ceremonies and the ideas are linked. And so we do the actions so that we don't forget the ideas. It's why on a weekly basis we get together to worship. It's because there's this idea behind it. There's a magnificent God. Don't forget him. We, uh, we, we pray when we are together. Virtually every single time that, that the followers of Jesus get together, we pray together. Why? To remind ourselves that we don't have a God who sits in some far-off corner of the universe who we're desperately hoping to attract his attention. We have a God who comes to us and says, I'm right here. Would you like to have a conversation? Worship, study, prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, those things that we do again and again and again, we do on purpose, not because we've run out of things to talk about, but because they remind us of very important ideas. One of the things that the Christian church has decided, oh, I don't know, hundreds, well over a thousand years ago now, that should be repeated is the celebration of the most important idea. The most important idea, so far as we can tell, the followers of Jesus, is that Jesus Christ came into this world, lived sinlessly and selflessly, died both as a sacrifice and as an example, that he did not stay dead, but on the third day was resurrected by the power of the Almighty God. He taught his followers for a few more weeks after that to make sure they got the point, probably repeating things that he'd told them for the previous three years. And then one day, beautifully, magically, mysteriously, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, praying, talking to God for us. We think that idea is so important that we should mention it often and that once a year there should be a big festival celebration of this idea. Here's what we have found. If we prepare ourselves well for that celebration, it will change our character, it will change the way that we uh, approach life, and it will fill our hearts with joy. We have also found that if we do not prepare ourselves for that big festival, it just kind of sneaks up on us. And about two days before Easter, we go, oh, uh, get, get the kids some new clothes to wear to church. Um, I'm, I'll wear a necktie once a year. You might buy a new one, put it on, go to church. And, and Easter becomes little more than putting on our Easter best, smiling at people we haven't seen since last Easter, and, I don't know, eggs and candy and then a yay Jesus at the end. But Easter, when, when it sneaks up on us, when we don't prepare ourselves for it, it, it seems to exert very little shaping power in our lives. And so for centuries and centuries now, the Christian church has, has kind of instituted an idea of let's prepare ourselves for a few weeks ahead of time for this great big celebration because then when we're prepared for it, it will have a grand effect in our lives. And that, that period of preparation we call Lent, you may know some people from some other traditions in Christianity who during Lent change their lives significantly. They fast one day a week during Lent. 
the, uh, other people will, will look at uh, Lent as a whole season, and they're going to say, I'm going to give up one thing. I'm not going to fast everything, but, but I'm going I'm to give up one thing, not just one day a week, but every day for 40-ish days during Lent because it's in, in somehow dinging my soul or somehow depriving my flesh that will make me more aware of a God who wants to shape me and cleanse me and make, make me in his image. And so during Lent, you'll, you'll see Christians who are being a bit more um, um, introspective, taking a look at our lives and trying to be aware of both our sin and the Jesus who came to address it and to set us free from it. That started, the, the annual Lenten celebration started this uh, past Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. You probably had some friends at school or at work who, because you don't, observe these things often. You got to work, and the first person you saw, you went, you got a little uh, something, right? But then when you saw three or four of them, you remembered, oh, yeah, it's Ash Wednesday. Uh, our, our folks in our tradition, um, for the most part, have not been um, um, participating a lot in in Ash Wednesday. And so for us, it's probably the case that the Lenten observance, that, that time of year when we're saying, pay attention, pay, pay attention, soul, to your need for a Savior. It begins on, on the first Sunday of Lent. That's today. We're repeating something that's been repeated thousands, uh, for, for well over, about a thousand years. Joining with other Christians who have year after year after year said, sometimes I just need to approach life a little bit differently so that I can hear from God and be shaped by it. I thought... Maybe we could take a little bit different approach to Lent this year. I thought that, um, you know, we don't, we don't have a bunch of palm branches from last year to, to turn into ash to, to put on your foreheads. Um, so I thought maybe this year we could have our own Lenten celebration. And it seems to me, if I remember correctly, last fall, we all seemed to be having such a fun time with the political elections, the campaign, that we would have another one. We just kick it off during Lent. We'll have... The campaign 2017, we get a couple of candidates who will say bad things about each other. We'll follow suit, say bad things about each other because we disagree. Uh, We'll sling all kinds of hate and accusations. We'll besmirch one another's characters. We'll say, you have to be stupid or dead to think that way. Let's do it. What do you say? We make Facebook great again. This is one of those times when instead of saying, what's a guy have to do to get an amen around here? I'm going to encourage you to boo the pastor instead of a big amen. But the passage that we're going to read this morning, I got to tell you, has two people who are vying to be your representatives. And Chantel Burke is going to come and read to us. This is the word of the Lord. I'd encourage you to stand in honor of its reading. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then God, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. 
even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between the death-dealing sin and this generous life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. Mm -hmm. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man, Jesus Christ, provides? Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. Amen. Good. Thank you, Chantel. You may be seated. Good. All right, so uh, she read the passage for us, and there's these two representatives. And whenever we, we use the word representation or representative, Americans these days start to, you know, get a little sketchy. Because when you say the word representation, we remember our history classes, and there's this phrase, taxation without representation. And every American kind of gets a little bit like this, right? A little bit defensive and on edge because we remember where that got us at some point in the past. If you just use the word representative, a whole other batch of Americans roll their eyes and experience a little sickness in the pit of their stomachs because something has changed in our land so that the vast majority of us have become really, really skeptical about government in, uh, in its, its largest uh, and, and furthest removed expression so that we become very skeptical about about our representatives, and we think they probably don't represent our interests, but their own, and we worry about um, corruption in government. So when I'm talking to you about representation and about representatives this morning, I understand that it's all probably negatively loaded for a lot of you, and and I'm going to ask you, if you would, to just take those meanings and set them aside for a minute, because I'm not talking about government representative, I'm not talking about government representation this morning. Instead, what the Apostle Paul was talking to us about is a whole different kind of representative, someone who's referred to as a covenant representative. I wish there was another word that would convey the thought well. I, I ran out of terms. I got to use that one that has all the negative Americanness to it. So I'll ask you to just, you know, let go of the negatives for a minute and take a little walk back through history with me. Maybe a little lesson in sociology this morning. If we, uh, if we study the, the land and the time and the people who, uh, who, who produced this book and its original texts for us, we learned some things. We learned that, that they viewed life significantly differently than we do. Um, all of the people in the, the ancient Middle East 
Um, certainly had some, some diversity among the groups, but they also had one thing very much in common, and that is that they viewed their groups, their societies, as being covenantal in nature. And that word covenantal means that they were bound by an oath to be absolutely faithful to one another, even if it killed them to do so. The, 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 the real term is a blood covenant, and the blood part of it says, I will, I will keep this promise to you. I will be faithful to you, even if it kills me to do so. And if I prove unfaithful in my pledge to you, I give to you the right to require of me my life. This was the understanding of, of the basic fabric of society in all, all of the cultures of the ancient East. Interestingly, it was also the understanding of the the basic social fabric of most Native American tribes as well. When we look back in time, we see that any group of people who identify themselves as belonging to one another, where in any group that gives identity to people, there's an undertone of covenant written right into it. The problem with that is that if you're in a covenant group, You see all the people in the covenant as your friends and family, and you see all the people outside of it as enemies and probably as dangerous and threatening to you. And because of that, covenantal societies weren't very welcoming, and in fact, they were very prone to warfare. But imagine if all down through time, you had to watch your every border You had to watch your every neighbor. You had to know who was a part of your tribe and who was not so that you could get one arm welcoming around and one arm stiff-arming the other and constantly, constantly, constantly living on the brink of outbroken war with your closest neighbors. They could be a town or a nation away. You can imagine that that would wear on people. And so from time to time, we'd, we'd find that these covenantal groups, whether they were tribes or nations or even covenantal groups as small as families, they'd get really tired of the, of the stress and the tension with their neighbors, and they would decide that two needed to become one. That these two covenantal groups would enter into a covenant relationship that would, that would take away the enmity and would take away the differences in identity and understanding, and those two groups would then become one. Families that had fought for generation after generation said, find a young boy and find a young girl, boy from this family, girl from that one, we'll marry them off to each other. They will be our representatives of these two families, and now the families will have peace. Anytime that uh, two covenant groups decided that they were going to come together in the interest of peace, come together in the interest of, of mutually benefiting the two groups, they always went through a really important ceremony. And uh, regardless of the cultures, we have found thousands and thousands of, of, of old documents that, that have shown us that across the various cultures, across the, the various nations and lands, that these covenant ceremonies always had a handful of things in common. 
among them were that the, the people who were involved would go through a series of symbolic events to make sure that the main point of now we are one, now we are unified, would just be hammered home in ways that you could never forget. So each group, whether it was two different cities, two different tribes, two different families, two different nations, each of them would select one person who would be their covenant representative. And when that person stepped out from the crowd, he ceased to be an individual citizen, but, but became the embodiment of that nation or group. He, he represented them. And in a public place, they would come together for this ceremony. There'd usually be some kind of a, of a sacrifice of an animal, often a, a young bull, and they would hack him right down the spine, lay him open, and the two covenant representatives would step into the gut pile, putting the blood part of blood covenant fresh in everyone's view and nostrils. And they would begin the ceremony with some sort of statement of, if we are not faithful to this this covenant that we make today may be done to us as was done, was done to this animal. Serious business, right? But then in the muck and, and in the mess, they would do a handful of things, a handful of symbolic actions that were really, really intended to drive home this notion of we are no longer enemies, but family. And... Uh, it often would involve the, uh, the exchanging of cloaks or colors, right? Tribal colors. Listen, um, back where I grew up, when I grew up, you wore a jacket from your high school with your town's initial on it and your colors, and uh, you didn't give that to anybody else unless it was a girl that you're really kind of fond of, and then she was wearing you know, your jacket with your name. Somehow, her, she was identifying with you. God help you if you had a girlfriend from the neighboring town, right? Because she'd wear your jacket to her school and have all kinds of hateful things said about her. But why? Because it was this idea that, that these colors stand for these people and these colors stand for these people. And when these two covenant representatives, enemies, stepped into the pile there, they would exchange cloaks clearly saying, now I'm part of your people and you're part of mine. They would usually also exchange weapons. Why? The idea of, well, I'll be your defense and, and you'll be mine. They often would switch places at some point in the ceremony, saying, I now stand with your people and you stand with mine. Sometimes there would be the exchange of, of jewelry, a gift that was given, saying, see how much we love you? See how much we're willing to invest in this relationship together? Often, there was also the exchange or the amalgamating of names. They would take two names and just jam them together so that you were no longer the Smiths and they were the Joneses. You became the Smith-Joneses. And so all the people that have freaked out in, you know, say the last 50 years over young married couples hyphenating names, get over it. We've been doing it for thousands of years. It's the way we say that two are now one. Okay? Uh, we have a precedent in the scriptures when Abram entered into a covenant with the, the god Yahweh, and then um, they, they took the, the dominant sound of Yahweh's name and the, the rest of Abram's name, and they crammed the two together, and he was no longer Abram, but Abraham, his, his name and God's name shoved together. 
The exchanging of cloaks, the exchanging of weapons, the, the change uh, of amalgamation of, of names. And then there was always this part that we liked when we were little boys watching, uh, watching westerns. It was the idea of becoming blood brothers. Somewhere on the forearm or, or on the palm, usually of the right hand, they would open up a big old gash and they would, they would press those wounds together this way or this way. And they would let their blood mingle. And it was this idea that now your life flows in my veins and my life flows in your veins. Once we mix bloods, there's no one doing this. We are now one because we share one life in the most literal sense. And after they had then inked out all the business of here's how I'll treat you and here's how you'll treat me and and if you don't, here's the punishment and if I don't, here's the punishment and if I do, here's all the blessings and if you do, here's all the blessings. When it was all said and done and everybody understood what the relationship was going to be like, then the people would sit down together to a meal. Not just the two representatives, but those two and, and, and more representatives from each side and as many as they could actually provide a meal for. Sometimes meals that, that covered a vast plain with thousands of people, two different nations coming together and, and bringing their food and mixing it. And we found that no matter what the two groups, no matter the point in history, no matter the time, and no matter their dietary peculiarities, that meal would always feature two things very, very prominently. Want to guess? bread, and wine. And after they'd tasted all the weird stuff that that clan makes, and these guys had tasted all the weird stuff that that clan makes, and said, I guess we'll have to learn to like it now that we're family and all, they would get to the end of the meal, and they would break the bread, and everybody got a piece, and they would, they would pour the wine, and everybody got a little bit, and everybody understood my body and my blood. You are now my body and my blood. When the ceremony was taking place, these two representatives were essentially making a deal. They were, they were speaking and acting on behalf of, their, of their, their people of origin. And they were working out the terms of the relationship. Here are the laws that, that we will keep, and this will protect our relationship. And here's some other laws that we will keep, and, and those will bless and prosper our relationship. And, and whatever happened to those representatives was in, in effect happening to the people that they represented. And whatever, those pro, whatever promises those representatives made, well, all the people were obligated to keep them because they're our representative. And whatever happened to those representatives would be perceived by everybody else as happening to them. So if there was treachery involved and two, two covenant representatives come out and, and somebody from this side decides to shoot an arrow into this guy, the nation over there didn't go, well, tough luck, bad day to be a representative. They said, you can't treat all of us like that. What was done to him was done to me, and, uh, and warfare would then break out. But it was this idea that what happens to him happens to me. What she does, I do. What he promises, I promise. What she gets, I get. Representative. He acts for me. There's the social context in which all, all of Old Testament and New Testament history is played out. All of it. Every people mentioned in this book, aside from the Romans, that's the way they did life. The Romans, everywhere they went, found people who lived like this and said, eh, we understand the blood part. 
the Apostle Paul, a, a, a Jew, a man of Hebrew descent, certainly a covenantal people, well-schooled in, uh, in his people's traditions, writes a letter to some other Christians in the city of Rome. And he tells them that they have participated in a covenant-making ceremony. And in, in releasing this letter to, to be read to other people and other churches and other groups down through time, he paints a picture of an opportunity that is afforded to every human being on the planet. The opportunity is this. You get to choose your representative. You may not have realized it, but all of your life long and for millennia before, there has been a campaign season well underway in which two representatives are offered to the people and everybody, here's the deal, there's no write-ins, okay? You choose one or you choose the other. And Paul makes the case that that somebody historically acted for the whole human race. His name was Adam. He was the, the first man and therefore got to represent human beings. And as his covenant representative act, he walked away from God and rebelled against him. Every human being seems to have seconded the motion somewhere along the way. And the response of God to that was not to then invoke warfare, but instead to say, I'm sending another representative whose every response to me will be yes and faithfulness. Consider Jesus as covenant representative. He was hanging on a cross and some people took his, his cloak, his colors, and Jesus said, Well, in exchange for that, I'll take your naked shame. They used weapons against him and beat him and tortured him. And in response, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even really understand what they're doing. Instead of lashing out against them. He gave us his name. Christians. He shed his blood and he said, before you get to cutting on you, there won't. There won't be any need for that. My blood is enough. And I'll offer it again symbolically to you in a meal. So if you're just checking out this whole God, church, Jesus, Christianity thing, understand this. You get to choose whose representative actions toward God will become your own. If you're really not interested in relationship with God, if you'd just like for him to leave you alone, he will. Pick Adam as your representative, the guy who walked away from God. If, however, there's something in your heart, your life, your mind, something in you that finds yourself drawn toward God, it it still doesn't feel quite right because there's something in you that's not very God-like and you don't know how to take care of that, but you still want to make that connection then you have a representative named Jesus who got all the relationship stuff right and says, you and I can work on the relationship stuff from here forward, but I would be glad to represent you to the Father 
if you would like. You get to choose today, and in a moment, uh, Pastor Bill is going to come and, and help you pray that prayer if you would like. Some of you made this decision a long time ago. You chose Jesus as your representative, but you look at over, over your, your shoulder at your history and you say, Oh, I have not been faithful to the covenant. Seems like I've wandered a, a long way from the agreement that I first made with him. Here's the good news. From time to time, in the provision of every covenant ceremony was stipulated an interval time. So from time to time, they would get back together to have a meal. And at the meal, it would be thoroughly discussed who had been faithful and who had not. And then the blood part of blood covenant could be invoked or mercy could be given, and the way that they extended mercy was by giving them the bread and the wine and saying, let's just renew this covenant today. So the table is set today. If you would, for the first time in your life, like to be included among the people of God and and to begin a relationship with him in which you take Jesus as your representative, he in his obedience, he in his faithfulness, he in his love and mercy and grace, if you would like for that to be the one who represents you to God, you need only tell him that and he will say yes. If you are looking at your covenant history and saying, I made big promises, but I have, I have some distance between me and God. Understand that God has already said, welcome back. And in receiving to yourself the, the bread and the wine that our communion teams are going to pass in just a moment, you can receive the mercy, the renewing mercy of God today. So here's the deal. Covenant had all kinds of symbols of war and violence surrounding it. But covenants come so that all of that violence ends. Covenant is the offer of peace between God and human beings. And this is what the church of Jesus Christ, the Christian religion, the Christian church, and the Christian faith are all about today. So communion teams, we ask you to please come and to serve. Julie, Lisa, come and, and set an atmosphere in which we can have a conversation with God. But understand that we are at a table with him today.